You sometimes hear people talk about generational curses. Uh, what's interesting is that there's a growing body of research that suggests that trauma experienced by our grandparents, say, leave a genetic marker that's passed down. There are ways that we carry um, the trauma of our ancestors genetically. They're finding this. And for us to enter into this exilic period, the period of exile for Israel, it'd be helpful to try to understand what it is to be the great-grandchildren of those who were forcibly removed from their land. There's about 82 million people who are displaced, forcibly removed from their location. Think of the Kurds or the Tibetans or uh, even in the, the 40s, Palestinians that were taken from their land and displaced into Jordan. That carries on even in the generations that come after them. It's interesting that the people of Israel were in some ways galvanized during this post-exilic trauma in this period after they had been conquered and then forcibly removed. There are a number of books that were collected, distilled, written during this period as a remembering. So, you know, there's likely some genetic, certainly some spiritual, but often even though the living memory of that terrible event isn't around, those who lived through the forcible eviction of the people of Jerusalem to Babylon, they're no longer around. But they're eating the food of their homeland, and they're telling the stories of their homeland, and they're singing the songs of their homeland. And there's a collective mourning that happens, uh, a, a weeping by the waters of Babylon. I'm going to show a couple of clips, ones from a, a series called The Bible, quite simply, of the journey, kind of the trail of tears, which happened even in our country, some of the displacement of peoples and the living memory of those who've been marked uh, by slavery or by displacement, you know, exists in those communities today. The trail of tears for the Israelites from Jerusalem to Babylon uh, are depicted in this short clip from the Bible. Um, I won't, the, the actual sack of Jerusalem was pretty um, graphic in this series, so I'm not going to show that. I wanted to show this piece, you know, Jerusalem's burning, and uh, they've been uh, under siege for a long time, and, and cannibalism is happening, and it's just awful. And it kind of shows some of this in this kind of graphic depiction of uh, Jeremiah is preaching to uh, King Zedekiah, and, Zinke and when, when the Babylonians come in, King Zedekiah's kids are killed, his eyes are poked, you know, it shows all that, so I won't subject you to that. But the departure of the people from their homeland into a strange place, I'll play that short piece. And after that, I assembled, I think I've played it here before, 
um, a musical rendition of Psalm 139 by the waters of Babylon. We laid down and wept. And then some artistic pieces that were done uh, for that psalm. So let's watch these two things back to back and put ourselves in the place of the exiles. Jewish people are forced into exile, a 500-mile journey east to Babylon. Zedekiah is the last of King David's descendants to reign. The Israelite monarchy ends here. Jeremiah is one of the few to escape. He heads to Egypt, never to return. The people have lost their prophet, their city and their king. The Jewish nation needs a different kind of leader to survive in Babylon. A man like Daniel.
So let me just build a historical timeline to place us in that spot of um, maybe a couple generations after the tragic event and that our grandparents and parents and even we have been weeping by the waters of Babylon, remembering, retelling those stories of the glory of Zion. So 587 B.C. is when the city was sacked by the Babylonians. Their northern neighbors of Samaria had long been uh, conquered by the Assyrians, and it's just kind of been a matter of time. Uh, Prophets have been foretelling of this sack for a while now, and it finally happens, 587. Seventy years later, so for 70 years, uh, those in Babylon have been kind of pining for Jerusalem. And a few of them go back 70 years later and rebuild the temple. And we're told in Ezra, the old people who remembered it before it was sacked were weeping, particularly when they saw the footprint of the new temple. It's like, you kids have no idea how glorious this thing was before. It's a fraction. It's a shadow of what it used to be. And everyone else, all the young folk, are whooping it up because this is glorious. So 70 years later, there is something of a return. A hundred years later, you get this uh, Persian queen who is Jewish, ethnically Jewish. Her name's Esther. This is a hundred years after the sack of Jerusalem. The temple has been reconstructed, even though a shadow of its former self. Queen Esther is ruling in Babylon. Um, So Daniel has kind of kept the memory alive and kept the sense of Jewishness and their holiness. Uh, Others have been putting in writing or collecting in writing the books uh, that now make up the Old Testament, or at least some of them. And Queen Esther is on the throne or adjacent to the throne 100 years after the sack of Jerusalem. 130 years later, Ezra goes back and um, begins, you know, establishing Torah. And uh, the, the center of worship, you know, reestablishing temple worship. The thing's standing... But now let's reinstate you know, sacrifices and the, the law here in the temple in Jerusalem. And 140 years later, Artaxerxes is the guy who's in Persia on the throne, and he's got this cupbearer named Nehemiah reigning in Susa, which is present-day Iran. So for Nehemiah... Uh, It'd be like 1880 for us. So I'm thinking probably my grandpa's dad, my grandpa and grandma's dad, me at 58, were born around then. So my great-grandparents being born in the late 1800s and maybe their parents having lived through what would 
the equivalent be the sack of Jerusalem. So that's sort of the mindset that will help you to enter into the story of the exiles and the story of Nehemiah at this time, 140-ish years after the sack of Jerusalem. We've maintained our dietary stuff, enjoying the food of Jerusalem. To a certain extent, the worship and sense of identity and this lament for um, Jerusalem. So exile, I see as a time of spiritual flourishing. In many ways, I, I feel the exile of the church, at least the American experience of the church. You know, there's certainly the last two or three generations of people feeling like this isn't answering the questions that I have and a departure, you know, the, the rise of the people who check none for, you know, what religion are you? Pandemic has certainly accelerated some sense of vacancy. Um, and then there's just been stuff, the politicization of the church, the polarization of the church. There's a kind of exile. And yet, for Israel, this was a bit of a honeymoon period. They, they kind of rediscovered who they were. And you get books that come out of exile. You know, you get the book of Daniel. You get this combo book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You get Esther. That happened after the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, or Zechariah and Malachi. Those were all books that came out of the exile. So there is a galvanizing that's happening even in this period of um, displacement. The people of God have been displaced and they're rediscovering something about themselves. And there are these words that, that have been captured and recorded by the prophets, some of them long ago. And they, they tend to have four elements to them. There's this promise, even before they were sacked, there's a promise, you're going to be sacked, but you're going to return. There will be a return. That's one of these words that has survived for generations. Uh, second, there's going to be a Davidic ruler, a pretty great person that's going to come about. You're going to return, and then there's going to be this very amazing ruler from the line of David that's going to come into power. Jerusalem as a city is going to be restored. That was a promise. And uh, the nations are going to be drawn to Yahweh. You're going to return. There's going to be this amazing ruler. Uh, the the city's going to be rebuilt. And all the nations are going to discover Yahweh through your faithfulness. These are the things that they're holding on to, or at least that we see Nehemiah holding on to in this book. Nehemiah, likely written by Nehemiah. What's interesting, I think it's the only Old Testament book that I'm aware of that is autobiographical first person. Uh, you know, plenty of Old Testament books were penned by people in the book, 
usually referred to in the third person. Moses is thought to have written most of the Torah or sections of the Torah, but referring to himself in the third person. Here's this autobiography, this memoir, and Nehemiah writing, I did this, I was cupbearer to the king, and I said this, and we did this. Just fascinating that there's an autobiographical piece to Nehemiah written in first person, present. And then you get uh, some genealogical records. Probably a scribe or someone else has compiled these. These are like ship's manifests for those who left or those who return. In uh, Israel, there's this real um, affection for legacy and for ancestry. And so it was important for them to record those things and to recognize those things. Their connection to their past is through their relatives. Uh, Janine and I, as some of you know, went to Ireland uh, last month to lead a pilgrimage. Yeah, it was amazing. And Janine's heritage is Irish, so her uh, one of her grandparents is Irish, but it was probably mid-1800s that uh, there was immigration from her Boyle side, her mom's maiden name, to America. And what was interesting was, you know, we just had about 24 hours of time to do a little bit of research on site. We had just little fragments of information from Ancestry.com. And uh, a set of kind of remarkable events and miracles led us to the parish where her ancestor came from. It was a number of steps to get there, just in these 24 hours. And one of the things that uh, the woman who kept the parish records, who'd actually done a lot of research on this family line, because she married into this family line, the Boyle family line, she said, you know, you are a uh, local. I'm what they call a blow-in. My, my family's been here for generations, but I'm not a local. You're a local. Oh, what's that? Got, what, how does that work? Well, you see, uh, you know, back when um, the British occupied us forcefully, they brought uh, typhoid, and they wiped out all the people except for the Boyles and one other family. Your two families were the only survivors in this region, so I'm just a blow-in. You actually belong here. This sense of survival and the return, something like the return of an exile, kind of. I mean, it's sort of about that time frame, and here's Janine coming back to her hometown and being viewed as a returnee from exile. Not quite the um, violent political displacement that happened to the Israelites, but a kind of displacement for her relatives during the famines in Ireland during that time. Here's the daughter coming back to her hometown. That kind of set of records is in Nehemiah. That feeling of you belong here and you're coming back and we're recording your name as one of those people who kept track that they came from this place and now they're returning. And for Nehemiah, the, the catalyst for this whole book is Nehemiah carrying a conviction about what should be with the reality of what is and that difference 
that gap between you said, God, there'd be a return. And you said that Jerusalem would be reestablished. And it's not. It's in ruins. And he holds this tension of what ought to be, what was promised with the report he's heard, that it is nowhere near happening now. And it's been 140 years. I mean, hasn't it been long enough, God? And he laments the, the weight of this difference, this gap between what ought to be and what is. I think out of this book, what I'd love for us to hold is that sacred lament of the kingdom of God. Jesus promised the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Now, I don't know that uh, the Israelites fully understood the length of time that some of these prophecies would take, the Davidic ruler. But they captured something of, no, you've promised shalom to Israel. We've, we've brought it to Babylon. We've married. We've bought houses. Jeremiah told us, like, settle down there. Well, now it's been 140 years. Some of these things have got to be ready. How do we hold the stories and the um, descriptions of the kingdom of God, of the government of Jesus and his peace like it started then and there'll be no end to it and yet we don't see it. Step into Nehemiah's lament of desiring, expecting, calling out God to fulfill those promises. Kingdom come now, on earth now. That cry is Nehemiah's cry. And yet we look around and we don't see kingdom come for our neighbors. Let me read um, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10, as we put ourselves in the place of Nehemiah and the exiles. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so this is like four-ish months from when that report came and he starts weeping and he, he writes that prayer in chapter 1. Month of Nisan, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I would not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now just a... Uh, word about Nehemiah's fear. It's pretty real. Like, this is a dangerous thing. So he's been sitting on this for four months, carrying the weight of waiting for four months, 
looking, I believe, for a chance to act. And here that moment comes. The king recognizes something's wrong. What Nehemiah fears is probably for his life, for one thing, because uh, he's going to bring up Jerusalem. Or maybe just for his job or imprisonment. What he's lamenting is this rival city that's lying in ruins. And he recognizes, so about 13 years prior, when, when Ezra went and started to do some rebuilding, some of the people who were threatened by that rebuilding wrote to Artaxerxes, wrote to this king, and said, these guys are building uh, a rebellious city. Uh, check it out for yourself. Like, look at the records. I realize this is 130 years prior. Artaxerxes, this king, um, dives into the historical archives and he writes back, you're absolutely right. Uh, this city has a long history of rebellion and resistance to kings. I ordered the, the uh, cessation of this rebuilding project. So Artaxerxes, a dozen years earlier, had stopped the rebuilding. And here's, you, you understand why he's afraid. This is like a North Korean pastor coming to Kim Jong-un and saying, I want to rebuild this uh, church that we've had. And Kim Jong-un you know, knows that he shut down that church because that church had been preaching uh, freedom or, you know, and like, no. I'm, so now this pastor is like, of course I'm sad. My church is in ruins to Kim Jong-un. So that's the kind of uh, fear uh, we're talking about. Kim Jong-un being appealed to to help with the rebuilding of the church in Pyongyang. So he's very much afraid. The king said to me, what is it you want? I love this part. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. It's like sort of simultaneously, like he's living in this space of intercession and he doesn't need to say, just a second, I've got to go in my prayer closet. I'll be back. Uh, just wait. It's like, boom. Of course, he's been sitting on this for four months. So, you know, he's carrying this prayer. And when the king's like, what do you want? He's like, two words, God help. And then he answers the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, 
the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Hunger for God's kingdom starts in, in prayer and lament. But it finds movement in our arms and legs. It's not just holding on to that cry, thy kingdom come. It's like stepping out to take big risks. Really, really big risks. It's clear when the king asks, what do you want me to do? Either he's got a short memory about what happened you know, a dozen years ago, or God has moved in this really powerful way. Nehemiah lays out this thing that is apparent. He's really been thinking about this. Like he's got it plotted out. I don't think he's got a background in civil engineering or city planning or urban development. But as he's been praying for four months, he's been thinking, if I get the chance, here's what I want to do. And he's laid out what needs to happen. He's he's probably got access, and maybe he runs in those circles, but he's a cupbearer. And suddenly he's thinking, if if the promises of God are to be answered, and we're to be part of that answer, we're going to need... X, Y, and Z. Starts making a list in his head, maybe on paper. So he has this uh, plan that he's ready to divulge when the king says, what do you want? Longing for God's kingdom ought to turn into dreaming and scheming. Ought to turn into fantasizing about the plan. What if God's kingdom were to come in this area, in our church, through our church, in this neighborhood? What would that look like? And what would be needed for that to physically manifest here? What kind of resources would be needed? What kind of permissions would be needed? That's where Nehemiah's been going for four months. Now, I've, I've sometimes heard Christians talk about, oh, you don't want to work with secular authorities. That'd be unequally yoked. I mean, that's a reference to a passage talking about marriage. It's not talking about working together for the kingdom. And honestly, I, I think the word secular is a misnomer. There's nothing secular. Everything's sacred. Uh, all forms of Power are sacred. They can be abused, but power is sacred. Uh, Governance is sacred. And, you know, Nehemiah could have done this on his own or locally. Like when the king said, what do you want to do? I want a leave of absence. You know, just give me a year, and I will do a little fundraising campaign locally, 
and I'll appeal to the exiles to help fund this. Um, but thank you. Just give me a leave of absence. I mean, these people are the enemy. You know, this is Chairman Mao. This is Kim Jong-un. This is Stalin. Uh, this is Castro. And he's saying, I'd like an investment, and I'd like your participation in this plan uh, to rebuild this uh, city, which you know, has in the past presented problems to empire and, uh, you know, restore this tradition which is uh, kind of anti-Babylon. All right, how much do you need? <laughs> he gets out his checkbook. Um, but working with sec so-called secular authorities, like, if we're to see the kingdom of God come in and through us in this neighborhood, partnership with a variety of others who may not share our faith, I think is fair game. I think Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10, reveals a kind of partnership that um, becomes holy. We, we sacredize the resources of the empire when we use them to see the kingdom of God come about. I remember when Janine and I went to a uh, country with a group of students, uh, a group of Christian students in a country that uh, was hostile to Christianity. Uh, we used our full organizational title, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, because we, we didn't want to play the secrecy game. There may be times where that's appropriate. We just felt like, I don't think so. I think we... they. They either say yes or no to us as Christians, knowing that we're Christians and we hold this you know, conviction about our worldview. And they said yes, and there were a lot of really amazing interactions and conversations. So we told the students who came with us, look, there is a hostility. You've just got to be um, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I don't want you initiating. I don't want you pushing Jesus on people. If you're salt, people will be thirsty. If you're light, people will be drawn to it. You know, if you love God and love neighbor, and that provokes discussion or question, great. You don't initiate, though. So a lot of cool things happened. The next year after we uh, completed that trip, and I was helping the next director get set up, and the foreign affairs official that we had worked with came to me and said, we have a problem. You know, he's heard the report from last year. Uh, the problem is, our question, our, our students ask a very small question about Jesus, and your students give a very big answer. And that's a problem. It's like, well, the problem is, our students believe Jesus is alive. And they have a relationship with Jesus, and they really, really love him. And so I, I recommend to you to order your students not to ask any questions about Jesus, because these guys, it's just, if you ask, you're going to get an earful. If you ask about my family, like you're going to get an earful. If you ask about Jesus, like they just love him. 
And so tell your students, do not, whatever you do, ask anything about Jesus. <laughs> and of course, the lid came off. And, uh, but, but it was that sort of transparency. Look, we're Christians. We're going to talk about Jesus if asked. And like, if you don't want that, then it's better for us to know now. Here's Nehemiah. Like, I want to rebuild this city that uh, you ordered cessation of construction on. And I want you to pay for it. He's like, all right, game on. Of course, God had been working, and, you know, maybe Ezra had laid the groundwork. Uh, Ezra didn't do that, right? He... uh, Ezra, in Ezra 8, it's like we weren't going to ask the king's permission and for his protection because they were starting to get some uh, static. And in Ezra 8, he specifically says, I wasn't going to ask the king uh, because I'd lose face because I told him, oh, God's going to take care of us and I'm not going to ask him for protection from these guys. And, And Ezra, it looks like, mainly raise the money locally. Nehemiah is like, no, we need you. I'd like to work with you on this. And I want your protection and I want your resources. So here's Nehemiah working with, uh, you know, Stalin, Castro, Kim Jong-un to help rebuild the place of God's people that resists empire. Because uh, he, he recognizes the scale of what's going to be needed. Like, I don't think this is going to happen within our little community. We're going to have to partner with uh, our enemy here to make this happen. Um, I also appreciate some campus ministries who approach the university not as the enemy, not like, oh, this... Uh, this force that's corrupting our youth, it's like, no, we're going to work with the university because for the most part, the university and the government want some of what God wants to. Like we, we got this mentality of us, them, that can be unhelpful. There are ways in which other groups of people, powers and movements that don't share our faith but do share some vision for the kingdom, even if they wouldn't call it that, I think we partner in those places where we see a hunger for the kingdom within another group of people. Unequally yoked is specifically talking about marriage. I don't think it's talking about building the kingdom with others. And I think Nehemiah um, you know, walks that out in his partnership with Artaxerxes. Powers may not have kingdom of God in mind, but often desire things God desires. Motivations may be different, uh, and they may at times oppose our efforts, but there's room for partnership even with mismatched motives. You know, whether Paul, whether through good motives or bad motives, all I care about is the name of Jesus getting out there. I recognize that someone's doing that with really bad motives. Meh. 
the names getting out there. Um, and even when there is opposition from hostile forces, God can use that. I was in Cuba maybe four or five years ago, and stories were being told about this revival that was happening in the 90s in Cuba. And people were filling the old churches, but the old churches were uh, too small. And so the church leaders go to the government and say, we need building permits because our churches are too small. Government at that time hostile to the church? No, we're not going to give you that. We're going to suggest that you shut down your churches and just uh, send people to worship at home. And here the government gives the uh, secret ingredient to unrestrained growth for the church. It just blew up after that. You know, the meeting in homes was the answer they needed, not building a bigger building. And so even though the pandemic and other things feel like there are forces restricting the growth of the church, there may be something in this season that's actually the secret sauce to unrestrained growth. What is it? How do we lay into that and turn that key? Um, it may be, it may have to do with small groups. Smaller groups, not bigger churches, may be part of what helps the church in this country to grow. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we're filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This period of lament and sorrow, there are, our tears have seeds in them. The longing for the kingdom is a seed. As we weep, we're planting those seeds. So we're longing for the kingdom, envisioning God's kingdom and its goodness and power and mercy and glory. We're sowing seeds of weeping as we carry some of the lament of stuff that's happened that will produce fruit. So how can the nations be blessed I don't know that Ezra and Nehemiah quite got that. There was a tension for the returnees and those who had been there for those generations. Yeah, the, the returnees felt like we're carrying the real, true people of God vision and you guys have capitulated. And there was a mismatch and a tension that I don't think worked very well with Ezra and Nehemiah and their understanding the full gospel, so to speak, that the nations and those who are there will participate in the rebuilding and in the glory of God's temple. How can we see the nations blessed by our dreams for restoration, renewal of our church, of our neighborhood, of our city? 
How can that longing and our risk-taking faith of asking big things of people in power to help us build the kingdom, how can our lament turn into that kind of action? That's the invitation I feel coming out of Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. Look forward to hearing what uh, Linda Stolfus has to say next week. Let me pray for us as I close. God, we see the descriptions of what it means and what it looks like when you live among your people. Even in the Old Testament prophets, we hear about weapons being turned into farming implements. And Jesus, when you talked about a world where enemies are loved and people walk in humility, where wealth, instead of concentrating into a few hands, is actually spun out to the margins. How far we are from that reality. And we confess we don't know to what extent that reality is a future, but we know you want us to long for it now and work toward it now in faith, in humility, in our simple understanding and inability to grasp your timeline. Lord, would you birth in us a picture of your kingdom that we might move toward, even if we never reach, like the list of people in Hebrews 11. They went for it. They went for that city even though they never got there, and you praised them for it. Lord, let us be that Hebrews 11 community that longs for, works for, and walks toward that city, even if we never see it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.